You are listening to a Blazing Caribou Studios production. Support and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash blazingcariboustudios. Is Emudol dangerous at all? I mean... You've just, you've just upset him. I said it again. No, no, he's not. He's very nice right. once you get to know him. Right. In fact, you can stroke him like that. He's very nice. Man? Yes. <laughs> Richard, will you show him how to stroke him? You? Just stroke him. See? Can you see? He's very nice, yeah, isn't he? I'll try that. <laughs> <laughs> Now, obviously, it must be something I said. Uh, Richie, Richard could stroke him. Yeah, well, see, this is a secret. You now, have to Emu, go like this. Emu is obviously a male. You call him he. I don't know. I've never looked. Ah. Yeah, don't. <laughs> well, would you like to have a look? No, 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 no. <laughs> see, there's, there's a way of making friends with him if you have to go, who's a pretty emu, then? Who wants a little chucky 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 too? <laughs> see? No. <laughs> you try it. Hello and welcome back to episode 100 of the Varmints Podcast, where every week we do a whole bunch of research to educate ourselves and you, the listener, on all things that creep, crawl, slither, fly, jump, hop, and swim on this planet one animal at a time. 100 episodes later, I'm still Paul, and I'm still not an animal expert. I'm Donna, and I have failed miserably to become an animal expert. And today, we are talking about the emu. And we are not doing that alone. With us is Corbin Maxey, a nationally recognized animal expert, biologist, television personality. He is most notable from his numerous appearances on the Today Show, Late Night with Seth Meyers, Inside Edition, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, and The Martha Stewart Show. And now today he is uh, joining us, and I don't know how he uh, kept this from his publicist, but I'm glad that (laughs) he is here with us today. Hi, Corbin. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Thanks for being with us. Oh yeah, I'm a huge fan of the show. I just told you I binge listened to all 99 episodes, so. That is fantastic. We appreciate that so much. Yes. Oh, yeah. Huge fan of the show. Excellent. You have done a lot of television. It's not what you mainly do. So how does a a cute, chubby, little, round-faced 14-year-old kid from Idaho wind up on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno? How does that happen? I know, because so many people ask me that. Well, I grew up in Roby Creek, Idaho. Do you guys know where that is? Absolutely not. No, it is so far away. Like, literally just imagine a cabin in the middle of the woods. And that was like me and my family, my mom, my dad, and my sister. And my sister and I never really got along. So I was always outside as a kid, you know, catching frogs and snakes and lizards and all that type of good stuff. And so I always had a passion for animals. We were always, we had a huge animal family. Um, You know, we had like pheasants and chickens and ducks and pigs and a turkey and an iguana. And anyway, so we had a bunch of animals. So I I always had a passion. And at actually 12 years old, I decided to start a reptile rescue in my parents' bonus room. 
And <laughs> it, it, it was insane. By 13, I had over 60 different rescued animals. So from pythons to iguanas to tortoises to even an alligator. And uh, a lot of those animals were pretty much former pets that maybe got too big or too, you know, aggressive for their old owners. And so... I, I was this young kid. I had all these exotic animals in my parents' bonus room. And I would, you know, obviously, as you can tell, I loved talking. And so I would like go and, you know, I would call daycares and little local YMCAs and ask if I could go do like an animal presentation with my animals, you know, speaking to audiences. And anyway, um, my mom actually came across a talent scout audition for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and uh, actually submitted an awesome pitch. Do you guys want to hear it? Yeah. Please, yeah. Yeah, so she, so they were looking, which is kind of where they were looking for teenagers with weird or unusual talents. And I didn't really have a talent, but I had all the animals. So she just wrote in and said, hi, my name is Corbin Maxey. Um, I'm, and I had just turned 14, so I'm 14 years old. Call me the next crocodile hunter or just call me dot, dot, dot. And a month later <laughs> they called me and it was like, what? It was insane. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that is so great. How do your parents like how? OK, you're you're using their spare room as a little <laughs> reptile sanctuary. Like how they must have let you do it. But how did you talk them into that? I know I have the most <laughs> I have like and kids email me all the time and say, oh, my mom won't let me have a snake. And I'm like, oh, that just sucks because my parents were so accepting and they always let my sister and I just express ourselves. And that was just my interest. And they always supported me. And without their support, like I wouldn't be here today on the varmint show. Cause I mean, you know, <laughs> I, yeah, a lot of parents would have said absolutely not, but I have to say I was very responsible as a kid, as a teenager. I also was a volunteer at the local zoo. So I, you know, I mean, I, I was responsible. It kind of kept me out of trouble. And so I think that's why they liked it. And even back then when you were a teenager, like your enthusiasm was just infectious and you were a lot of fun to watch. I saw an old clip of you on The Tonight Show with Samuel L. Jackson <laughs> and you you basically just dropped an iguana in his lap and gave him a banana. And he were, he, you were like, here, feed this banana to this iguana while I talk to Jay, pretty much. <laughs> Samuel yeah. L. Jackson. I don't know. And I never had I never had ever done that much TV like The Tonight Show with Jay Leno was my first you know, major TV appearance at 14. And for some reason, I just, I don't know. It felt so natural. I was like, okay. Cause I remember after the camera shut off and I remember looking out at the audience, I was sitting next to Jay and I had, I think I had a Python on me, which I still have to this day. His name's Shere Khan. He's a big Python now, but I remember thinking, wow, this is like what I want to do. I've never felt more comfortable. And so that's why, um, yeah, I've always pursued a career in television and educating people about animals. So yeah, well, you were great because you were you were cracking jokes with Jay and playing little pranks on him and, and <laughs> going over here and talking to Sam Jackson, and it was really, really cool. Do you have a single standout moment that happened while you were doing something on the Today Show or on Tonight Show with Jay Leno or any of these other appearances that you've done? I There's so many. Um, yeah. I think a standout, and mind you, this was like television and the entertainment industry is an extremely hard, hard career to pursue. I mean, you'll hear a million no's and maybe one yes. And so, um, yes, I was on The Tonight Show at 14. That was a great break, but it took me like three and a half years to get back on The Tonight Show with Sam Jackson. So there were many, many moments, you know, even local TV moments. But um, I think a moment that stood out in 2012 I was, I had been on the Today Show, 
I think three times then, but I, yeah, I was just kind of one of those guests you would see maybe once or I don't know, maybe twice a year. And I remember I got a call from my producer, um, Andrew, who still produces me today and said, Hey, we just heard from, you know, the big heads at NBC and, you know, the head executive and just want to let you know that you did a great job and you're going to start being on the show a lot more. And I was like, Oh my gosh. So that is so cool. Thank you, Donna. We were remarking on how accessible you are and how wonderful that is because, you know, a lot of people in show business, you cannot get to them. Like, they don't even have their own emails or Twitter accounts. It's somebody oh. else doing that. So. Oh, yeah. When, when people were suggesting that we do a show with Corbin Maxey and I went to the website I was like, oh man, I'm gonna have to have I'm gonna have to deal with like a publicist and a manager. And We're I'm gonna, gonna have to get our own agent to talk to this guy. <laughs> yeah, and it maybe it may have happened a year from now, and I, and you were like, no, just text me or just just send me a tweet. Mind blown. Yeah. Mind blown. God, no. No. And I like to handle all that. <laughs> I think it's good to do it on a first person basis. And like, yeah, because I, I know you sent an email out and I'm sorry. I'm sure my manager never got back to you. They're, they're so busy <laughs> no, with other didn't. clients. So I usually handle a lot of that stuff on my own, even with the Today Show um, regarding, I you know, like write my own talking points. Of course, the producers like, you know, make sure, you know, they, they have to approve everything. But I try to make it as easy and simple as possible just for everybody. I think it's easier. And better that well, way. watching your videos, I've really appreciated how friendly, forceful, I don't know if there's a word that means friendly and forceful at the same time, but you are very friendly, forceful about reassuring people and about making sure that the science is right. Yes. Busting people's preconceptions and myth busting and just, I just love it. I if there's a word for friendly forceful, I want to know what it is. But that's what you do, and I really enjoy that. Thank you. I'm going to start using that during shows. I don't know if it sounds appropriate, but I will. <laughs> well, I feel, I feel like you can. People can sound kind of like they're looking down on people if they don't know things, and I don't think you're like that at all. You 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 genuinely enjoy your animals, and you give off a um, an aura of not just respectability, but also deep knowledge and somebody that wants to share and that is what i really enjoy about that Thank it's you. not like you're going don't you don't know this what's wrong with you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> which i love that i love that well i want to say something i love listening to the varmints because i learn something every single time and i love that and i'm i mean easy you know even being a biologist or a wildlife educator you're still learning and i i love that about your podcast i love learning new things all the time which is great Thank you so much. We yeah, I really, really, really thank appreciate you. that. Thank you so much for validating what I said to the tiny little five-year-old girl that sent us questions from the bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Even grown-ups need to learn all the time, and, and uh, I, I'm so happy that you that you feel that way, too. Yes, and yeah, I think, you guys, with the 100th episode, I have to say you both deserve an honorary animal expert award. I mean, it's uh, you guys know a lot about animals. <laughs> we we know a little. We're okay. <laughs> we're getting better. Yeah, we're we try to make sure our so we try to make sure that we tell the truth, and that's that's all we can do. My favorite is one. I think one podcast you went over like someone wrote in like for corrections, and you said I'm just going to go over this correction. You know, I just want to remind you. You know, in the beginning we say we are not animal experts, and we mean it. I was dying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what we do. <laughs> yep, we get that every once in a while, and it's like don't. Uh, 
That's why we did that. We have the dumb uh, clip for the corrections mm-hmm. segment because we knew there would be corrections. I have it's inevitable, and it's and even doing these segments on the Today Show because we average anywhere from two and a half to three million people see these, and sometimes you'll get a viewer comment. I think I was talking about I had like I I had a squirrel monkey on, and they are one of the most intelligent primates, like you know regarding their brain ratio size this or that, and she was like, someone emailed me and she's like, well actually the capuchin, I mean just stuff like that. You get stuff like right. that all the time. Well, Actually, and, yeah, I don't even respond to it. <laughs> anyway. But we love it when we're wrong because we learn new stuff. There yeah, you go. definitely. So, when me and Donna were growing up, there was a guy on TV called Jack Hanna. Yes. <laughs> and you remind me of you're like the modern Jack Hanna. Thank you yeah. so much. I actually have a joke, and my manager told me I can't say this anymore. But I say I'm like I'm like the modern Jack Hanna. I'm like Jack Hanna just with a better heart condition. Um, <laughs> 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 no, Jack is great, and you know I've worked with Jack's team from the Columbus Zoo, and he's healthier and he's doing great. And I watch Jack too, and he's still doing shows. So God bless him. Good for him. That yeah. is awesome. We also watched a lot of Mutual of Omaha and National Geographic and mm. Crocodile uh, Hunter, all that kind of stuff growing up. And you still, you seem like you have carried on that tradition of of education for fun. Thank you, so. thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm in the process of yeah. There's a lot of exciting stuff coming up. I can't say too much, but I have a great team behind me, and the goal would be to have a show similar like that, like to Jack Hanna or Mutual of Omaha's, to kind of with my own Corbin twist, because I feel like I'm. Not exactly like those guys, maybe just a younger, I don't know. No, a more contemporary version, a a carried forward into the future, you know, more, a better version. There we (laughs) go. A better version for now. (laughs) Thank you, Don. I appreciate it. Corbin Max is on. (laughs) (laughs) Can you actually do my voiceovers? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. You guys can help me with the intro and everything. So we are going to talk about emus today because you have an emu named Napoleon. Oh, yes. He's my favorite. Just a reminder to go to BlazingCariboustudios.com for links to our audio and our show notes for today's episode. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at, at Varmans Podcast, all one word, and at Varmans Podcast at gmail.com for questions, comments, stories, and suggestions. I run a Pinterest board for every animal that we talk about on the show, and the link to that is in the bottom of every episode's show notes. If you want Varmint's merchandise, you can go on over to tpublic.com and put Varmint's podcast into the search engine, and you will find that we have all sorts of wonderful stuff. And, hey, if you like this show, why not tell a friend about us and introduce them to the podcast? We are everywhere that podcasts are found, and word of mouth is the very best way to help us grow. Let's learn about emus. Let's do it. Hey, let's go get educated on some animals. I know you wanna. (laughs) We are learning about emus with Corbin Maxey today. The emu is the second largest living bird by height. The first, of course, is the ostrich. Emus and ostriches are not related. They are in the same class, aves, which means that they are both birds. And that's as much as they have in common. It's an easy mistake to make because, like ostriches, emus are soft-feathered, brown, flightless birds with very long legs and necks. 
Adult emus can reach up to six feet or two meters in height and can weigh around 60 or 70 pounds. Females are usually slightly larger than males and are substantially wider across the rump. That's a direct quote from the thing I was reading about emus. <laughs> emus are endemic to Australia, which sounds like a disease. What that actually means is that they are native to Australia and they are found only in specific biomes within Australia, which is still like most of the continent. Uh, as such, emus are really imp important cultural icons in Australia and are featured on the coat of arms and on various coins. Male emus are called cocks, females are called hens, and babies are called chicks, just like chickens. A group of emus is called a mob. The birds were first called the New Holland Cassowary in 1789 because of its resemblance to a cassowary bird. Again, the only thing an emu has in common with a cassowary is that they are both birds, just like an ostrich. The origin of the name emu is not quite certain, but it is thought to have been derived from the Portuguese word ima, which means crane or ostrich. There are two common ways that you'll hear the name of that bird pronounced, emu and emu, and emu is correct. Emu, emu is not. Good to know. I'm going to talk about the emu's eyelids right now, which are super, super cool. So they have two sets of eyelids. They have one for blinking and one that will actually keep dirt and debris out, which is so just really efficient if you imagine where they live. You know, they live, a lot of them, in, you know, arid habitats in Australia. So it really helps them out. The nictitating eyelid? Yep. Or something like that? Yeah. The nictitating membrane that helps them Oh, there them we out. go. <laughs> so it's, like a, it's like a little windshield wiper for their eyes. Yep. And I love looking at Napoleon's eyelids up close. They're so cool. When they're running, do they close that membrane? No, I mean, well, I think maybe at like higher speeds, but with Napoleon, not really, actually. But I think if they're going at their full max speed, um, I definitely think they would. But no, Napoleon keeps his eyes open. Emus have a super long neck, and the reason is this adaptation allows them to see over really tall grasses of the Australian grasslands where they evolved. And this allows them to see predators and other stuff that's threatening from really far away. So... It's a thing that keeps them from getting et and by other critters. <laughs> I would tell you something, Donna. They are they use that long neck to spy on neighbors as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. They are the most inquisitive. And I've actually heard from people that people in Australia will keep them as little watchdogs, you know. I mean, they are they literally are so nosy. They are the most so nosy. Wherever you go around the property, Napoleon's watching you. <laughs> that is Wow the best we have a nursery down here that used to keep an emu as a like a watchdog <laughs> wow. you drive yeah. past it and you can see the emu kind of just patrolling the property so i just had a curiosity did you name your bird napoleon because he's trying to take over europe or <laughs> no so i actually got napoleon many years ago i got him back in 2005 and we were reading the book animal farm Mm. And I really didn't care for the book. I don't really remember it really, but I remember there was a character Napoleon, and I thought, "Oh, I like that." So that's and yeah. I yeah, and I wanted yeah, so I named him Napoleon after that. I'll have to tell Megan from Oh No Oh No Lit Class that he's that uh, literature inspired your bird name. Oh, I thought you were going to say you're going to tell Megan I hated the book. <laughs> <laughs> she won't. She won't mind. <laughs> I'm sure it's a great book. Just when you're 15 at 7 a.m., it's not the funnest thing to read. That's no. a little much. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> 
So wild emus don't have that many natural predators, but the fact that they are flightless doesn't really matter because emus can sprint up to 31 miles an hour or 50 kilometers an hour. If for some reason an emu is not fast enough or it is caught by surprise, they still use their wings. So the emu will raise one of its wings upward and point the other towards the earth. This causes the emu to swivel around almost 180 degrees, taking off in a completely different direction without losing any speed, which is amazing. That and, is uh, incredible. Yep. Mm-hmm. So predators can't really turn that quickly, and emus can kind of maintain that speed for about 30 yards or so, and that's enough time for a predator to tire out and give up the chase. And the videos of them booking are so cool. <laughs> they're just so funny because there's the, they, I mean, you have to admit this is kind of a dorky looking animal. So they're like, so funny. I was wondering how Aboriginal Australians managed to catch these birds because they were, you know, they were consumed by them. So as a little bonus, we'll include a video in the show notes of a man in Australia who's a tour guide demonstrating an ancient technique to lure emus and just go there and watch it for yourself. He basically lays on his back and kicks his legs like he's riding a bicycle. And an emu's curiosity is kind of greater than its shyness, so they all kind of came closer and closer and closer, and as soon as he jumped up on his feet, the emus ran away really fast. <laughs> it's really cool. Oh, man. I remember watching Steve Irwin, the, you know, obviously the crocodile hunter, he would catch them barefoot. <laughs> Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, guy was crazy, and I've we've had to catch Napoleon um, just a few times to move him to new exhibits, and it's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, I bet. You have to watch out for those legs, man. Those are like crazy talons, crazy claws. <laughs> wow! So do you just you just chase him until he wears out, or how do you how do you wind up catching him? Do you have to corner him? It actually takes it, it takes a couple different people, but some you literally have to jump on top of him and hold him, and someone has to make sure that the legs, because the legs will obviously come out. Someone will have to make sure the legs are basically controlled. Yep. Wow. And then move him to a trailer. So yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we don't move him often. We've moved him, I think, twice, and so. Sounds like that's enough. <laughs> Disclaimer time! The Farmers Podcast knows it's not fair to compare animal intelligence to human intelligence. But then, Don and Paul only have the yardstick of themselves, so they're going to do it anyway. So, as you know, Corbin, we have a dumb, arbitrary scale of 1 to 10 where we uh, measure an animal's intelligence that's based upon nothing but our own opinions. And <laughs> I'm, getting I, offended. I'm getting offended already. Go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, I found this article in the Sydney Morning Herald that basically said that emus are big dum-dums. But since you actually take care of an emu, I'm just going to defer to you before I, before I tell you what I rated them. Okay. And I just want to do a disclaimer as well. I love Napoleon Please. more than the world. Okay. Uh oh. <laughs> but yeah, Uh-oh. they are not very intelligent. No. <laughs> and they, you know, can get spooked easy. And you know, I have a lot of friends who work in you know zoological institutions who have you know trained emus. Like I've talked to one of the top world bird trainers. We've worked with him on the Today Show, and she said, "Listen, like." There's only one behavior you can really teach an, e- an emu to do, and that's just go from one point of the stage to the other. 
Right. <laughs> so, and, and, right. And it's obviously just for food. And so, no, no. And I, yeah, I mean, I love Napoleon. But, uh, and, you know, honestly, I thought he was trained for the longest time because I, I, I mean, ever since, I mean, I guess that the first few years I noticed when I had Napoleon as he grew into an adult bird, I would walk up to Napoleon and he would all of a sudden get down on the ground, fluff off his back feathers and lay down and I'm able to touch him and, you know, do his hair for the morning. And for so many years, I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm, you know, one of the world's best emu trainers. And what's happening is Napoleon's pretty much getting into the mating position. <laughs> Hello, oh. see? There you go. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I like this, this line from the article. It says that if an emu threatened to attack, a person only had to hold a stick above their head. Then they think you are bigger than they are and they back off. Yeah, but I, I will say something, though, out of, you know, with the ratites, which include the emus, the ostriches, rheas and cassowaries and kiwis, those larger mm-hmm. birds, those primitive birds, emus have a very friendly disposition. I mean, compared to an ostrich, which apparently have nasty reputations, they kill people all the time. But uh, emus, have, oh, I've, from what I've read and the ones I've worked with, are fairly friendly. So be, being attacked would be pretty rare. Can't, will your emu get let you get close to it and pet it and love on it and all that good stuff. Or oh, oh yeah. Not so much. And I can't yeah. wait. Yeah. I should order a varmint's hat or you guys can send me one and maybe I could try to get it on Napoleon. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah. And I, I will put the disclaimer cause I, we refer to Napoleon as a male. And in fact, we found out four years ago, she laid an egg and so, <laughs> so when I say Napoleon's getting in the mating position, that's a typical that would that's kind of what a female would do. So I think Napoleon thinks I'm an I, I'm almost positive thinks I'm another emu. Wow. But don't that's pretty common with a lot of birds. From what I've been able to see, is that when people have pets of birds, mm-hmm. birds are like, "You're my mate." <laughs> I, don't, I just don't expect it from like a six foot tall dinosaur. It's kind of intimidating. That's oh, the best thing ever. I sent Donna a video before we got on, before we started recording. And uh, it was an emu that was kind of getting a little bit territorial and defensive. And it was raising up its neck and hissing. And I was, I told Donna, I was like, these things are straight up dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. They gotta be. And I just keep imagining like a T-Rex all covered with feathers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you guys. <laughs> Running at you and making that sound they make. Yeah. And- <laughs> We've had people because, you know, because they're able to withstand very cool temperatures. So he's or excuse me, she's out year round and you'll see footprints in the snow. And we've had people say, oh, my God, what in the (laughs) what in the world is walking on your property? Because they look like dinosaur footprints. Oh, that's That's so scary. (laughs) (laughs) I did wonder and I didn't get a chance to check this out. So maybe, you know, you know, you remember the big giant ostrich-like bird that used to live in um, New Zealand? The uh, moa. Which I can't the remember. Moa. Yes, thank you. Are they related to those guys? Yes. Or no? those are, yes, are. those are their ancient, ancient relatives back in the day. Very primitive birds, yes. I mean, very distantly, hmm. but yeah. There's, mm-hmm. They're like some of the oldest types of birds in, the, in that order, the ratites. Wow, that's awesome. Donna, did you give... Um, did you give emus an, an arbitrary intelligence uh, rating? Yeah, I'm giving them an arbitrary intelligence of like, you know, four. Yeah, five, I gave them a three. Oh, five. I was going to do four and a half. Yeah, I feel like they don't really need much in the way of what we call intelligence, meaning problem solving and stuff like that. I mean, they're, they live in a grassland. They evolve to eat things and run away from other things. 
there's just not a lot of hardware that's necessary there, you know? And I have to say, just, I'm sorry, really quick, just because uh, there's so many things coming to my mind. We actually, because I, I remember I told you guys how nosy the, the emu is. We built mm-hmm. a bridge over our creek to, it, basically, we have a creek that runs, runs through our property. We built a bridge over the creek in a separate yard to where Napoleon can cross the bridge and watch us when we're barbecuing or having family functions. And I had this, we, I built this emu bridge. I was so proud. And I had this big, you know, envisioning thing that he was going to run across the bridge. And anyway, it took Napoleon three and a half years to cross that bridge. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me feel a little better about my dogs taking almost a week to figure out that if the gate at the top of the stairs opens in the opposite direction, they can still go through (laughs) it. Bless her little heart. (laughs) All right. Well, we are going to talk about emus and pop culture and a couple other things. But first, Corbin Maxey, please tell us and the listeners about your podcast and about everything else you got going on. Yes. Well, I hope everyone checks out my podcast. I know Don is a huge fan. Um, (laughs) The podcast (laughs) is called Animals to the Max. And basically, it's a show about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And so I, you know, each episode interview a person in a wildlife related career, whether it's a zoologist, an aquarius, a wildlife rehabilitator. We've had, you know, famous authors on, uh, you know, TV personalities, just a variety of different people. And um, I think it's kind of cool to give people an idea who love animals, like what it would be like to work with them on an everyday basis. So that's what the show's about. Yeah, it's a yes. terrific and, show. Yeah, too. you can also follow me on Instagram at Corbin Maxi or Facebook. And we're also on Twitter as well. Donna, can you do the cool Twitter voice again for me? The Twitter voice? Yes, you go. What's that? We're on Twitter. On Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> at Corbin Maxi. But yeah, and you can go to CorbinMaxi.com to listen to those episodes. And we're also where all podcasts are listened to. <laughs> Yep. And if you send Corbin a tweet and you say hi, he will say hi back. <laughs> Probably pretty too cool. fast. After Probably I, too fast. I, I don't know why I call it a... I think it's because somebody's child said Twitter. And she said, uh, are you going to send a twittle? Which is what I call it now, a twittle. <laughs> Not a tweet, a twittle. Did you twittle them? <laughs> it's because when a three-year-old says something, you have to call it that forever. It's just a rule. Right. It's just how it is. Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Well, this here's animal rancher and expert at large, Cotton Shorts. You know Paul and Don are just a couple of nerds like you, and they don't usually get to see animals in the wild. But so we'll talk about where they usually do get to see them, which is to say on popular culture, books, movies, television, and video games. So for pop culture this week, I'm going to talk a little bit about Emu the Puppet from the 1970s, which I vaguely remember. Corbin, you didn't remember Emu at all, right? No. No, but I like yeah. how he was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. That's kind of cool. Yes. Uh, Donna, did you remember Emu? I did not, and I'm surprised because my parents watched The Carson Show, and I used to watch from the stairway, you know, Yeah. when I was supposed to be in bed. So. Yeah, he was only on a couple of times. So Rod Hull, he was an English comedian, and he was best known as a popular entertainer on British television in the 1970s and the 1980s. He rarely appeared without Emu, who is a mute, highly aggressive arm-length puppet that was modeled on a, a, an Australian Emu. 
So Rod Hull's first job in television was as a lighting technician after moving to Australia in 1961 from England. He then began appearing on children's afternoon shows, one of which was called the Super Flying Fun Show. And that is when a producer requested that Hull use this emu puppet that Hull found and then put away in a cupboard because he didn't want to use it. So the puppet wound up being part of his act. Hull returned to England, and in 1971, he signed with international artists after he used his puppet to tear up the office. And then he began appearing on several children's and adult light entertainment shows, always with this, with this puppet, Emu. The puppet basically allowed Hull to playfully assault talk show hosts. Occasionally, Emu would just attack Hull himself. Terran upsets, causing general havoc, while acting as if he had no control over Emu at all. He was controlled by Hull's right arm, but if you look at the videos, you can see Hull's right arm. He used a fake right arm to give the appearance that the Emu was acting completely independently. And (laughs) if you know that and you look back at the videos, it's still a really, really cool effect. Like, you know that arm is fake, but it really works. In 1972, Emu destroyed the King, Mo- the Queen Mother's bouquet of flowers during the after-show lineup at the Royal Variety performance, after which he appeared in many other shows. In 1976, Hull and the Emu puppet made their most famous appearances when Emu repeatedly attacked Michael Parkinson, causing the interviewer to fall off his chair. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes. <laughs> that video is awesome, but it's also very visual, so it's not great for a podcast, but I will link to it in the show notes. Uh, blazingcariboustudios.com slash emus it is chaos and he had to like settle down after that Uh, this led to his own television series emus broadcasting company emus world emu tv and emus all live pink windmill show in 1983 he was able to travel to america where he appeared on the tonight show he attacked johnny carson even after he was told not to by the producers and he attacked richard Pryor too in one of the comedian's first public appearances after undergoing major reconstructive surgery on his face. Oh my wow, gosh. I was, dude. When, when I saw that clip, Paul, I was shocked how he attacked Johnny Carson because he viciously attacked him. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That was the clip you heard at the beginning of the show. But I, you know what? I got to be honest with you. Whenever somebody doesn't listen to a TV producer and they just do their art anyway, I'm kind of a huge fan of that. <laughs> I'll tell you what, if I touched any of the talents I work with of the celebrities on the Today Show, I would be jumped so fast by bodyguards. <laughs> I would never be invited back. I know it's a totally different world now. Completely different yeah. world. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy time. Yep. Rod Hull passed away in 1999. He had an accidental fall. And uh, remembering Rod Hull, Michael Parkinson, the guy that got knocked out of the chair, He reminisced that he found him to be a very charming, intelligent, and sensitive man, quite unlike the emu. (laughs) He observed that the puppet was on the dark side of Rod's personality, and very funny, provided it was not on top of you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how funny. All right, well, I'm going to talk about, like, a, a very, very brief, tiny tiny pop culture thing that won't take long at all (laughs) my emu is a guy called farmer Ernest. he was in a game called crash tent twin sanity which was one of the crash bandicoot games uh this game was released in 2004 for the playstation 2 and the xbox and it's the fifth game that is not a spin-off so 
If you want an emu character to pick up a quest from, Farmer Ernst is your man, or your emu, or whatever. <laughs> he's a he's a dark blue emu farmer who grows wumpa trees. He raises his own chickens and participates in farmers markets. He lives in a small farmhouse behind Skull Rock on North Sanity Island. He appears to know and trust Crash, and Ernest's only appearance is in that Crash to Insanity, as I said, in which he asks Crash to get rid of a swarm of worms in his orchard. And you have to use uh, Cortex as a hammer to smash the worms in the time limit and let the wimpa trees grow. The farmer promises Crash a power crystal if he accomplishes this deed. However, this happens. Oh, Crash. The farmer's market is tomorrow, and my wumpa trees won't grow, for my orchard is riddled with greedy worms. If you rid my land of these pests, I'll give you this power crystal. I'm an evil scientist. What do you expect? <laughs> that is the evil Dr. Neo Cortex, who is the bad guy in the Crash Bandicoot series. Or might not be the only one, I don't know, because I never played that game, but at least in this series, he's the bad guy, and he takes the power crystal away. And the reason it's funny is because it's a trope on video game quest givers giving you a reward, and he's like, nope, no reward for you, you're just <laughs> doing the quest. <laughs> So that's it. That's it. That's my guy. Yeah, that's I cool. love Crash Bandicoot, but I never played that version of it with the emu. But uh, yeah. No, did you play earlier version? I didn't at all. Yes, and so. I loved it. And I don't kill me for this, but I never was a huge video game person just being outside, you know, living in the cabin. But uh, yeah, Crash Bandicoot was the one I used to play. I used to love it. Ah, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I looked into it and I was playing other stuff at this point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I was going to talk. It was kind of hard. Was it hard for you guys to find emus in pop culture? Oh, definitely. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. I feel like it goes yeah, that way sometimes. The best one. But I was going to say, I was going to just talk a little bit about all those viral videos you see of emus. There's one in particular of an emu fetching a ball. <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh. That thing is so funny. It's so funny. <laughs> and it's just, I'm sitting here thinking like, oh my goodness, I should have like recorded Napoleon back in the day when... You know, she was a young little juvenile because it could have just gone viral. <laughs> but, uh, How funny. Yeah, there's a lot oh, of viral emu videos. Great. That was just one in particular. There's also a lot of them playing in the water, which, you know, with hoses, which is just hilarious as well. So, and Napoleon does all that kind of stuff. He's not as good as yeah. fetching the ball as this one in the video, but he would be inquisitive. Well, we'll Amazing. link that fetching video in the, in, in the show notes so that people can watch it. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, hey, are you going to eat that? Okay, Donna, I think you're going to be the tiebreaker here because I'm looking at the show notes and under would you eat, my answer is definitely. And Corbin's answer is no in all caps with three or four exclamation marks after it. Hmm. <laughs> so well, I would say I would definitely try it, but I wanted to talk about how uh, emu eggs are green those giant they're giant eggs and they're and they're green and i found a an article about how to the foodies in fashionable places in the world these are kind of the next big thing and 
this is a couple of years ago, so it might be passe by now. I don't know. I'm not a foodie, but uh, uh, they were going for like $90 a piece. And, Whoa. But I thought the eggs were so cool because they're green. They're big, giant green eggs, and that's kind of to help them blend into the background so that predators don't find them. But at the bottom of the article, I, I noted that there was this chef that had a Game of Thrones-themed supper at his restaurant, and he featured dishes inspired by the show, and he said that emu eggs made, or emu eggs made the perfect dragon eggs. And I was like, they totally do! Oh, my oh, gosh! Oh, wow. <laughs> that is so cool. But yes, I would try them. I would try the eggs, and I would try the, I would try the meat. Yeah, not me. No, <laughs> yeah, and I, no. I think it's I'm partial because I I rescued Napoleon from an emu farm where okay. Napoleon would have been turned into meat or they would have harvested uh, her oil. But it was so I guess it's kind of funny because when I bought Napoleon as a chick, they also tried to sell me. Actually, they gave it to me for free, and I actually said I don't want it. But they tried to give me emu sausage. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> emu sausage. Yeah. Yeah, I like me a sausage, so I would definitely taste that for sure. Yeah, but so. it's so crazy here in Idaho. I actually talked to the first people who ever purchased emus just to bring them into Idaho, and they paid sixty-five thousand dollars for a pair of emus. And, Good heavens. Right? Whoa. And that was because they thought they'd take over the cattle industry with a leaner meat. And, you know, you could harvest the meat, the eggs, the oil. Some people use the feathers. So, yeah. I think my my food box is not as large as Paul's is. But I have to admit that I, I, I don't have the emotional sensitivity about eating animals that maybe other people do. And it's probably because my father was raised on a farm and kind of raised us from when we were really small to go yep cows are cute they're also tasty <laughs> <laughs> both things are true you know <laughs> so so, <laughs> so yeah i mean i would try them yeah so 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 corbin okay you won't eat emu meat which is understandable mm -hmm. totally I get understandable yeah. but napoleon occasionally lays an egg okay do you ever get like you know tempted to have an emu omelet or no what do you do and with the eggs? <laughs> napoleon actually <laughs> you know, let's go back on their intelligence actually accidentally smashed the egg um oh. <laughs> oh. uh you know i i really wouldn't paul but i mean i think it's the equivalent of 10 to 12 chicken eggs and i know people that that do have emus still and they they eat the omelets and they say they're quite tasty so i just think it's like psychological for me I don't know. It's not something. I don't know. Well, I feel like if you had chickens, you would eat their eggs. Oh, you know what I mean? Well, which which so, I do and which I do eat their eggs. So I know it's like completely ridiculous. But I just think. It doesn't matter. We acknowledge that things that don't have to be rational on this show, especially <laughs> when it comes to eating food. Because there's no rational reason why we have our food taste, really. There isn't. There just isn't. So. I no. probably could not tell the difference between it. If there was a big omelet, I, I probably couldn't tell the difference. Well, they say in the article that emu eggs are much richer tasting mm -hmm. than chicken eggs, and they that they taste a little more like duck eggs. But I wouldn't—I've never had a duck egg, so I wouldn't be able to tell you if that's true or not. But uh, yeah. there you go. Okay, good to know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. My cousin is allergic to chicken eggs and can only eat duck eggs. So I didn't know there was a huge market wow. for that. That's interesting. I didn't. Apparently, either. there's duck eggs at farmers markets uh, at various places so holy Wait, cow huh yeah the more you know <laughs> <laughs> see i said i learn something every time i listen to the show 
awesome. Woo. Well, hello, Paul and Donna. It's me, Billy Lee Campbell. And I'm here to ask you a question. Is your brain a repository of useless information like mine is? Well, let's help you win that next trivia night or just sound smarter than the rest of the room with the Animal Fact of the Week. Back to you, Paul and Donna. Oh, good old Billy Lee. He's only ever seen emus on TV. I bet Billy Lee's so, eaten an emu. <laughs> Maybe. I'm sure he has. Maybe. He probably rides an emu. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then eats it. Yes. Okay. Yep. So I'm going to talk about the emu drumming noises, which is amazing. So emus actually have a pouch in their throat that's part of their trachea, and they are able to actually inflate that with air, and they make this incredible deep drumming and these booming noises that you can hear over a mile away. And Napoleon does this every single morning and night when I see Napoleon. Every single morning. Yeah. So it's cool. incredible. Like the neighbors think we're like playing like this bass or we have a loud bass and no, it's, it's Napoleon. Is it, what kind of a noise is it? Um, uh, I'm here. Come and make baby emus with me. <laughs> I think it's impressive. I think as Napoleon sees me as her mate, I think it's like, Hey, check me out. And it's amazing. Cause they'll just puff up. And this, this sack is actually pretty big. Like their throats will really inflate and the feathers will just kind of go all over and, um, they'll kind of raise their heads and do this little dance. It's really neat. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure it, I'm, it has to do with a mating. Amazing. Yeah. That reminds me of the cockapo going boom when they oh, yeah. are looking for a mate. That boom sound they make, that reminds me of that. Mm-hmm. So, ah, interesting. Have you guys ever heard until this week of the Great Emu War? Yes. You've heard of it? Corbin, have you heard of this? Yes. No, I would be lying if I said I have. <laughs> no. Okay, the Great Emu War, this was a real thing. And just so you're aware, some emus are going to die. So if you don't want to hear about that, you can you can fast forward. But it's called a war for a reason. So it's the end of World War One. Australian veterans, they're returning home. And the Australian government was kind of having trouble finding things for them to do. So something called a soldier settlement scheme was introduced and a little over 5,000 ex-soldiers were given land so that they can convert that to farms to raise sheep and wheat. Picture yourself as an ex-soldier. You've returned from war to Australia. You're given a plot of land that you had to turn into a wheat farm. The Great Depression happens. Wheat prices plummet. The government promises you subsidies and then doesn't fulfill those promises. And your farm is beset by emus who are tearing up your fences and eating all your wheat. And even though you may be a trained rifleman, you have no access to guns or ammunition to deal with the emus. So what do you do? The veterans called on the Australian military to take action. And the mission was to cull 20,000 emus. So this campaign was led by Major GPW Meredith of the 7th Heavy Battery of the Royal Australian Artillery. The army set out on November the 2nd, 1932, determined to gun down a group of 50 birds in the district of Campion. They moved in formation behind the birds, and the birds answered their organized assault with inspired chaos, scattering themselves in all directions to minimize the casualties. Two days later, they didn't didn't get any emus. Two days later, some hidden gunners sighted a mob of approximately 1,000 emus nearby. At point-blank range... The soldiers opened, fired, and they got about 10 emus. 
and then the machine gun jammed. <laughs> the emus scattered once again, and one of the recruits said, The emus have proved they're not so stupid as they're usually considered to be. Each mob has its leader, always an enormous black plume bird standing fully six feet high, who keeps watch while his fellows busy themselves with the wheat. At the first suspicious sign, he gives the signal, and dozens of heads stretch up out of the crop. A few birds will take fright, starting a headlong stampede for the scrub, the leader always remaining until his followers have reached safety. So then the army tried using their trucks, and they tried gunning them down and moving trucks, but the rough terrain meant that they couldn't aim properly. Just a few days later, it was reported that Major Meredith, his party had used 2,500 rounds of ammunition and killed 200 emus, about 1% of the original goal of 20,000. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's so funny. It's just so, it's like man's hubris, you know? It's like... <laughs> It's such a good example of man thinking that he's going to control nature and it just yes. backfires. So And nature just goes, we have emus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, it gets better because there was a second campaign mounted by Major Meredith. Five days later, he got about 40 more emus. About a month later, it was reported that 100 emus were being killed every week. But when Meredith did the math, he found out that his army was using 10 bullets to take down one emu. A grand total of about 300 emus were killed. Meredith was recalled, and the first Great Emu War was ended. It was done. <laughs> Meredith was able to convince the government to send soldiers back to Campion. They had kind of learned from their mistakes a little bit. They managed to cull a few more emus. In the end, the Australian army took out, this is going to sound terrible, but about 4,000 emus, which is just a fraction of the originally intended 20,000 emus. It was a really, really expensive war for the Australians to fight. Wasn't so bad for the, the emus, but the emus pretty much won, right? Yeah. Yeah, so Major Meredith had this to say. If we had the military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can <laughs> face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. They are like Zulus, whom even dum-dum bullets could not stop. <laughs> <laughs> The farmers again requested military assistance in 1934, 1943, and 1948, but they were turned down. There was a bounty system in place since 1923, and because of that, some farmers were, were armed, and on their own, they were a little more successful than the military. But eventually, the farmers and the public just kind of lost interest, and fences became the standard way to keep emus, dingoes, rabbits, and other animals out of wheat farms. So the emus won. <laughs> Good for them. <laughs> Unsurprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I mean, I think sometimes people need to remember when we talk about these things that happened now uh, close to a hundred, over a hundred years ago, <laughs> uh, that people had very different attitudes about animals in, oh, the, yeah. in the past. So. We should remember that. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's it. like because today this would be like this. This isn't a good idea. Why? Why is anybody even paying anything for this? Well, I mean, you know, a long time ago. Okay, I wanted to talk about the emu swimming, and we have a story from Corbin about that. And uh, so I'll just be extremely brief. <laughs> but there is, <laughs> there is, because I want to hear the story. Uh, there is. 
you wouldn't think that a bird that huge and with feet that shape would swim because it's not a waterfowl, right? So I mean, it's not unusual for birds to swim, but they're usually birds that have adapted to be in the water all the time and they have web feet and stuff like that. Or they're things like um, hawks and things that will, there's some, some species of predatory birds that will dive into the water, grab a fish and get out. But, but you expect for there to be those sort of aquatic adaptations. Emu don't need no aquatic adaptation. <laughs> they don't need it. They're like, whatever, we float. We're going to swim. And they do. And we're going to put a video in the show notes of an emu, of an emu doing just that. And now I'm going to hand it back to Corbin and let him talk about Napoleon swimming. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I don't know if it's really a story, but every time Napoleon will hear the hose... Napoleon is ready to go. We actually have a, a little pool area where we'll fill up his pool. And Napoleon just goes to town. Absolutely loves to swim, um, loves to play in the mud. Well, sometimes, I'm not kidding you, will get on her back and get so excited in the water and the mud and put her feet up in the air. And it's just, it's the cutest thing in the world. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. It's so cool. Well, I think the the, the takeaway as far as learning about evolution is concerned with that is that these animals enough of them survived that no aquatic adaptations were necessary like they are do they do just fine without them and (laughs) so they've that body plan works really really well and so i think it's pretty amazing it's a it's a neat it's neat but it's also like scientifically kind of cool as well it's so cool and it's cool too because you know in the wild in australia you know they will and you know their mobs will cross rivers actively and you know search of food and yeah it's a really neat ad- um, adaptation like nothing gets in their way they don't care yeah <laughs> they do not care <laughs> they have no hoots to give i mean they're not an owl but you know what i mean <laughs> i'm lost no <laughs> <laughs> you don't care (laughs) well before we wrap it up today we have one more thing to get to and that is the finalists and the winner of the varmint cell phone photo backyard wildlife contest that's really a mouthful varmint cell phone photo backyard wildlife contest so we have the winners and the third place winner the judges said this photo of a tortoise or possibly my grandfather wearing some armor either way (laughs) I wanted to ding this photo for looking just slightly overexposed and for the odd shadows cast by the lighting, but I think that drew me in more and my criticisms became positives. The weird lighting matches the old man face and the expression it makes and I could not look away. Really interesting shot of a beautiful animal. So congratulations to our third prize winner, Chris. Yay! Congratulations! Congrats, Chris. I actually wanted to submit a photo, but I realized I can't. I'm like a guest (laughs) co-host. Well, we couldn't submit photos either, so we're with you. We understand. In second place, our judges said, This person gave herself the difficult task of asking insects and spiders to sit still long enough to get good shots of them, and it paid off. It took some time, but I finally decided this one was my favorite due to the fantastic bright orange that is the perfect complement to the green of this background. The way your subjects are just slightly off-center and bees. I really think bees are super cool. So congratulations to our second prize winner, Angie. 
Yay! Yay! Congrats, Angie. All right. Nice. Yay, congrats. Can I do the honors? Please. And now the first place winner of the Varmint cell phone photo wildlife contest. The judges said this person turned in an incredibly charming shot that really got under my skin and made me smile. This shot captured a candid family moment that piques my curiosity and makes me wonder what they're looking at. This shot is cropped in an interesting way with the hen spilling out of the frame while acting as a contrast to her chick. She's both a subject and a background to the image, while the actual background accomplishes a lot by being full of details without taking attention away from the birds. This photo has charisma and drips with rule, American flavor, and I think it's a perfectly captured moment. Congratulations to the first prize winner, Mandy! Yay! Such a beautiful picture, Mandy. too. Yeah, congratulations. It's awesome. Totally cool. So thank you, everybody, for participating in the contest. We really got some good submissions. We really enjoyed looking at the pictures, and our judge did, too. Congratulations to Chris, Angie, and Mandy. Their photos are featured in the show notes right now at blazingcariboustudios.com emu. So do go have a look at them. Corbin, Maxi, it has been an absolute delight to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I had such a good time and they, I feel so honored for your hundredth episode. And I wish you <laughs> both, you know, you and Donna 300 more. Oh, thank you so much. There, <laughs> we hope so. There's enough animals out there. We might be able to get 300 more. <laughs> yeah, for sure. This episode has been brought to you with technical support by Matthew Chomo, bed music by Kevin McLeod. Our logo was created by Imran Javed. Our vocal talent today was by Carrie McGinnis, Chris Brayton, Josh Hallmark, Chris Green, Andrea Freitas, Stacy and Frosty. Additional voice talent this week was brought to you by Billy, who is one of the co-hosts of We Watched a Thing, and Cambo, who is the host of True Crime Island. They saved you from having to hear me do a bad Australian accent. <laughs> Thanks to you also to the Patreon supporter. We appreciate your support, uh, giving a dollar or two to Blazing Caribou Studios every month. Thank you all for listening to episode 100 of this podcast. You have thousands and thousands of choices of podcasts to listen to. And the fact that you take the time to listen to us is we really, really do appreciate it. I can't stress that enough. I had no idea when I started this thing that I would make it to 50 episodes, much less 100 episodes. So thank you so much for your support. We really do appreciate it. And until next time, be nice to animals. Do it. You've been listening to a Blazing Caribou Studios production. Support and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash blazingcariboustudios. And uh, in, they can weigh around... Oh, boy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, by the way, Corbin, if you mess up, just you can start over again because we're not live. You know, I have never messed up before, Paul, so I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sweating over here. I'm so happy I got through my intro well. <laughs> I'm kidding.